This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Gudrun Elderjo. She values cultures from around the world and has collected what she calls quality-made goods from far-flung places to sell in a 200-year-old barn she and her husband own in Knox, the Pleasant Valley Exquisitum. She was born, raised, and educated in Germany in a very poor family. Her father was killed in Russia at the age of 27, leaving his 23-year-old wife pregnant with Gudrun's brother to raise two children. She married an American soldier, and they lived around the world while raising their four sons, finally settling in the Helderbergs. I have worked on it for over 50 years since we lived actually in Altamont, where I started my business in a pigeon house. However, the animals have gotten bigger. Uh, You know, it used to be all kinds of, it's a big, big barn. But anyway, I have the finest porcelain, crystal, wood carvings, Henri. I have the finest Swiss music boxes. I don't know where to begin or where to end. (laughs) Well, what is amazing, I have been in the exquisitum, as you call it, and you feel sort of like when Gudrun is talking to you about whatever object it is your eye has fallen upon, and this huge space is just packed, packed with different gorgeous objects, and Whatever your eye has fallen on, she can give you an entire history of it. Like she has a personal connection to it. One thing that I have um, purchased from there, and maybe you could tell us a little about this, it is um, a light. It's, I don't know how to describe it, because the light shines through a panel that is... Uh, is it carved? Okay. Is it? <laughs> okay, I can, uh, I can help you out here, Melissa. Uh, you are speaking of the lithophanes, which yes. I have. Yes, tell us about that. They, Just... Okay, they were invented 200 years ago in Germany and France simultaneously without the artists knowing about each other. The artwork is done by the artist pouring a sheet of wax, paraffin, on a sheet of glass, very thin and very even, about two millimeters at the most. Then where more wax is carved away, more light falls through, where more is left, that creates the shadows. So lithophane, that's why it's called that. Then after the artwork is completed, and I have to interject that you cannot make a mistake. If you carve more wax away, you have a hole in it. It's just like the watercolors. When you did a pure watercolor do not, does not tolerate any mistakes. Uh, mold is made then from this wax and then a porcelain slip is poured in that and then that porcelain slip which is extremely fragile, is fired in a kiln. Uh, 
Um, originally, they were never colored. You can color them, but the, you know the German ones, which I have the exclusive for for the United States, as most of the things in my shop, the firms have contacted me as a thank you for all the lectures I've given all over the world, all for nothing, only that people would know there is still quality made. You do not have an obligation to buy junk stuff. But anyway, there are all kinds of themes. And first, of course, I have to say that they were all used with a candle behind it or hung in a light. And when the light falls through of any sort, that's when the picture comes to life. Yes, it's sort of magical because when the light is off, it 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 doesn't look at anything like it does when the light comes on. So that is just one tiny example of how much you know about each of the objects that you have in that barn. And I'd just like to ask, are there if you could just describe a few more, maybe your favorite objects. I know you have the Steve stuffed animals and you've got these amazing music boxes. And if you could just pick out a few more of your favorites and just tell tell us about them in the same way you did that. It's fascinating. Well, I don't really have any favorites because everything in the shop has history and value to it. I don't believe in wasting people's money. And, you know, I have heard that over and over again, that people are amazed that I know about every piece. And I always feel if you don't know what you're selling, you shouldn't be selling it. Um, you know, with junk, there is no history. But with quality, there is history. One of the things that you have also in your household is one of my labergés and they are an air purifier which everybody should have they were invented in france 120 years ago by a pharmacist and chemist named maurice berger and they work by catalytic combustion they destroy germs and impurities in the air. And if you choose a scent, a fragrance, it will perfume your air. The fragrances are all natural plant extracts. I have at least 80 of them. I would like of everything else. There is no lack of selection. So um, that's something really important to have around. This has nothing to do with a diffuser. This is entirely different and the only thing on the market like that. Yes, uh, I live by them. I'm somebody that suffers from asthma. So it yeah. really, it does. You can feel the difference in the air when you have that lit. It just Yeah, feels... or if you cook something um, that has a funny, well, to me, there is no funny cooking smell unless you burn something. Um, it will take the, the burn sent out or some people don't like garlic or fish. It will actually eat up that scent. The same with cigarette smoke. If anybody should smoke, it will just eat up that smoke. It's really phenomenal. And the, um, 
they're also very beautiful. You have them in many different styles. They're, um, they are. They are works of art and in, in any price ranges. And that's an important thing about my shop. I have some of the most exclusive, one-of-a-kind things. And if you are looking for something for a little present for 5 and $10, it's there. So it's... And, of course, I don't know, Melissa, whether you remember, but all the artwork in the shop is my work. That's actually my favorite thing to do. My paintings, and they are all from places that we have lived, which has been all over, or things that I like. And I work in all media, but um, you know you have to you have to see things like that. <laughs> yes. Well, so tell us a little about yourself. Um, how did you come to have such regard for well-made original objects? Tell us a little about your life growing up. Um, was it something your parents instilled in you, or how how did you come to have this as your life's work and philosophy? Well, I was born, raised, and educated in Germany. I come from a very poor family. We were all hard workers. Nobody ever complained about anything. You may do with what we have, and we were grateful for it. My father, unfortunately, was killed in Russia. He was 27, my mother was 23, and she never remarried. I have had one brother who was born after my father was killed. So it was discipline and respect and hard work. Um, I remember going to the next biggest city with my grandmother on the train. And I would stand when I was maybe five or six or whatever, I can't remember. Um, and standing by the beautiful shops for an hour staring at things. We had nothing of the caliber that we have in the shop, in the shop. But because you have it doesn't mean that you cannot have an appreciation for it. And you have to read about it. You have to study about it. You have to have an intrinsic love for beauty and endurance. You know, it's life is short, but art and exquisite things go on long after us. Uh, you know, again, um, I'm actually by profession, I'm an international banker. And then, um, you know, I met, Bill met me in Germany and dragged me over here. And I gave up my career. We decided that if we had children, I would give up my career as international banker and make raising our children my career. We have four sons right in a row, and they have grown up to be wonderful, loving, caring, hardworking people. Um, they, you grow with what you like. You appreciate it more and more, and I think inferior stuff you see around the more you say oh my god how could people spend their money on this junk to fill our landfills but and of course being exposed 
to beautiful things or beautiful music with opera. We never had a TV, but you listen on the radio. My mother was a phenomenal musician. She played the piano, the organ, and she had a beautiful voice. And there was always classical music playing on the radio. Um, does that answer some of your questions? Yes, it does. But it leads to so many more questions. So here you were growing up with your brother, being raised by a single mother, a very young single well, mother. Actually, we, we, we lived with my grandparents, of course. Yes, but still, um, I mean, that's... You know, Moody was, yeah, Moody was 23. Yeah. But my mother... She made all her clothes. I had one pair of shoes and two dresses all through the university. They were always clean and I wouldn't even have asked for anything. No, Moody made my clothes. You know, everything was clean and mended and um, it was a, a work-filled life. This quality, um, you know, and then going to school, meeting people from parts of Germany. I, I went on the train every day. Where did you go? Um, Where did you go to university? Uh, in Mosbach. It was a, is still there, a special school for um, international business business administration and I did a four-year program in two and a half and I had decided to go into banking which was a very rare field for a woman to uh, how many years ago oh my god over 50 years ago it was dominated by men uh, so I did all that banking stuff for and school and working at the bank right from beginning stages on um and i'm you know i loved it i still do i'm very interested in all international economics and banking and uh of course i rip out my hair when i see what's going on but i don't have much left so i better stop ripping <laughs> So as you were pursuing this career in international banking, you met Bill Bellerjo. Is there a story there? Yes. Is there a story about... Oh, there is a, there's a story there, all right. Um, actually, my beloved brother, who just died a month ago, un, totally unexpected, off a very fast-growing brain tumor, he was gone in a month. I'm sorry. I the interest in men, I was too busy studying. Um, you know, it took seven years to get my degree, and that was it. Anyway, Karl Heinz came home, and he said, I met a really neat American today, a soldier, who was sitting on the steps of the cafe playing the guitar. <laughs> and that was that. Oh. Well, then a few days later, they called me. I was working for the internal revenue at the bank at the time, and they knew I spoke English. I, I in, in in Europe, you study different languages, several of them. That's part of your curriculum, no matter what. 
Anyway, they said, Gudrun, you better come out here. There is some American here. So I came out, and there was Bill. And he pretended, said he needed a bathing suit or something. And then the next thing was he wanted me to go with him to the swimming pool in the next town. Anyway, long story short, a week later, he asked me to marry him. A week later? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I still don't know why I said yes, to be honest. But my mother was very, very, very tough. Oh, my God. She beat me up constantly. I, I it, was, it was very strict, very, um, well, how would you say? I, I wanted to get out of there. But anyway... Um, I only saw Bill actually three times. Half a year later, we got married, and then um, that was January, and in October, Bill had to come over here again. His Bill went to a, a military academy in Vermont, Norwich University, and as a commissioned officer, he had to go wherever they send him. So that's the end of the story. We have been, oh, God, and one... Never mind, never mind helicopter. <laughs> it's too lengthy. Oh, but, go ahead. We have time. I'd love to hear it. Well, uh, I think I wrote Bill a letter. We didn't have a phone or anything. And I sounded so unhappy that he flew, well, he had his, his driver or flyer or whatever you call it, a helicopter from Aschaffenburg where he was stationed and he landed at the local um, sportsplatz where they play soccer. Oh my gosh. Kid in town, <laughs> of course, wanted to see that helicopter. <laughs> yeah. He worried about me, but it was just, you know. But anyway, we've been married 58 years and it has not been easy. Uh, oh my God. Anyway, we um, were in Saudi Arabia for five years with our four sons, which would be another chapter of a few hours. Well, However, can we have the short version? Can we have the short version no. of life in Saudi Arabia? What was that like? Were you on the base the whole time, the military base? Well, um you know, all the Americans or the foreigners, I should say, had to live in a certain area, except for the first two months. We lived in the Arabic city of Iddamam. Andre wasn't even in school yet. I mean, the boys were all little. And then we lived in a, well, it was a um, totally surrounded area where you were literally, um, no, especially as a woman. You could not leave the base by yourself. You had to be accompanied by a man, your husband or the brother. And of course, women were not allowed to drive. I think that is something new now. And uh, Arabia is not a country that acknowledges any other religion except Islam. And you realize that you had to dress accordingly. I had absolutely no problem with the dress code, with anything. You go to another country, you are a guest there, and you behave accordingly. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I the first things that I've always done, no matter where we have lived, is learn the language. I was teaching for two years, art and philosophy, and took three different Arabic classes. Um, it's very important that you speak the language and understand. In fact, the Arabs have a very profound saying that be sure you speak the language of the country where you are in, so you know when they condemn you to death. I know that sounds drastic, but you know, there are still beheadings going on and all that. Anyway, we had an old Land Rover, which we drove into the desert. You had to take everything with you. Um, it's extremely hot, 120 degrees with 100% humidity. And for excitement, there is a Shamal sandstorm coming in where you could not see the sun. Only red, very hurtful blowing sand for 30 days. Um, it was um, completely different life. I mean, you can't imagine. Uh, and then Bill was uh, got transferred to Holland. I ruined my kidneys. I had developed kidney stones from the water. And then after two and a half years in Holland, uh, they let all the Americans go. Because as an American, you are not part of the European Union, obviously. And the European Union employees had uh, security. They couldn't just fire them. So two weeks notice, that was it. We had in the meantime lost our house over here. The people didn't pay the rent and we couldn't pay the mortgage. Um, we tried to find employment for Bill. I remember I wrote 746 applications for European engineering firms. Bill is a civil engineer, but there were too many unemployed Europeans. So we stayed till we were broke to the last cent and then we came over here. We managed to hang on to the barn where the shop is in. Um, and here we are. <laughs> and here you are. What an experience. Oh my goodness. Wow. So through this all, you just had to have great strength to be raising your sons in the midst of these um, very different environments. Just tell me a little about yourself as a mother. Like, just how do you feel about motherhood? What kinds of things did you do with your sons, whether you were in the Arab desert or in Holland or here back in the United States? Just tell us a little about yourself as a mother. Well, first of all, a mother is a full-time job. If you want to be a good mother, I grow everything we eat. I couldn't do it in Saudi Arabia, obviously. I bake all our bread. And it, there could be no more important thing than the being a teacher, a guide, teaching your children about everything around, about right and wrong. And whenever people have asked me over the years that have gotten to know our sons through school where their children went or whatever, they said, oh my God, what did you do with your kids? 
They are so well behaved. They have such good manners. They are the hardest workers we've ever seen. I said, they were raised with loving discipline. I believe in discipline. If you have to tell your child three times not to do something, it's two times too many, and they know you don't mean it. Um, there was no beating or anything else, but I did, um, wait a minute, that's not true. I used to, you know what the real level is? That's a wooden spoon. <laughs> oh, no, I didn't know that. Okay, well, when you come to my house, you'll see them. That's what I used to cook with. But anyway, um, they knew that we all had to stick together to work because there was no money. Bill could not find a job over here because he had, and we didn't have one single cent for four years, Melissa. It was not easy. We ate nothing but baked beans, nothing. And then Bill shot a woodchuck that was eating our garden, which we had started. And I would not recommend that. It was the grossest thing. Besides, <laughs> tried to cook. Just a blob of fat. Anyway, um, you know, you, you have to know how to make do with what you have. Yeah, Bill, of course, is very well educated. He has two master's degrees and enough for his doctor engineer. But at that time, uh, now let's see, we came back in 86. There was a trend towards hiring minorities and women, whether they were qualified or not. So Bill could just not get a job. So that was tough. But anyway, eventually he got something again and had to start from scratch. And, um, you know, going through hard things and working together. And the boys and me always had little work parties. And there was grumbling going on. But I said, okay. They saw the neighborhood kids playing. And I said, how come we are working? I said, because that's what we do. First you work and then you play. And it was the same with their schoolwork. I was never, ever not home through all these years when they came home from school. And I have to relay one thing to you that I think it was so phenomenal. Uh, it was about maybe three or four years ago or five. A very elderly gentleman came into the shop and he said, are you Mrs. Bellagio? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, you probably don't remember me. And I said, I am really sorry, but I don't remember you. And I do have a very good memory for people, for names, for, for little details, I care. And he says, well, you used to live next door, didn't you? I said, yes. Well, I said, I was your boy's bus driver. And every day I was looking forward to stopping at your house. You would stand there by the door with your apron on and the most heavenly smell came out of your house. <laughs> Boys would run up to you with a big hug and there was freshly baked bread or something every day. And I have never forgotten about that. 
Well, I was crying. Yeah. You know, for him to remember that. Yes, that's wonderful. I love that story. I can picture you standing in the doorway in your apron with this swimmel wafting out and your sons running to you. That's a yeah. wonderful story. Just wonderful. Well, you know that it's nothing better than freshly baked bread. <laughs> yeah. Are you still doing that? Are you still baking oh, yeah. all your own bread? Oh, I wow. Do, I bake all our bread. All and eggs, everything. I make English muffins. I make our own cereal. We really live extremely simple. You know, rice, beans, lentils, uh, barley. I make up more stuff. We never ever go out. And I try to grow. We have a very big garden. And I try to grow everything from our own from my own seeds, which I harvest, whatever is possible. Obviously, you live here in this area, so you know that a lot of things will never grow to maturity because we have a very short season. And then I put up things for the winter. Um, and whatever I can't grow, we don't eat. It's very simple. And I swear by herbs. I call myself the herb queen. <laughs> what kind so of herbs? Everything you can think of. From all different kinds of mints, all different kinds of basils, uh, oregano, um, tarragon. Uh, oh my God, what don't I grow? Really, I'm, I'm herbs. You don't need any salt or any of that. Herbs give your food such a phenomenal flavor. And of course, the best is if you can use it fresh. However, again, we only have five, six months of growing season. Then I cut it and I dry it. If I would muster enough energy and have time one of these days, I want to write a cookbook. Right from how to make a soup broth, how to eat healthy and very, very reasonable. You do not have to spend a lot to make a good meal, but you do have to spend the time in the kitchen. And to me, Melissa, cooking is just like painting. You have to have a knack for it. You have to have a talent for it. And you have to have the love to do it. Even if your legs hurt and your heart hurts, you say, well, I'm, I'm just going to do it. And that's that. So tell us a little about your painting. Um, how I don't know how you fit this all in. You do your own gardening, you do your cooking, and then you Everything. run your shop and you do your painting. So tell us, um, like, how do you get an idea for what it is you're going to paint? How, what is your process when you're about to create an artwork? Hmm. Well, I have not been very inspired the last two years because I have been too upset about my business going down the drain, but we don't want to talk about that. You can imagine when you're working on all borrowed money and the firms I represent have extremely high purchasing requirements. You can just say, okay, uh, I will represent you. You have to buy so much a year to represent mm -hmm. these famous firms 
when you are only two or three outlets or a representation of that those famous firms in the USA. Anyway, um, I get my inspirations in nature. I love flowers. I like beautiful countryscapes, seascapes. Um, I make sketches where we go, you know, from all over, whether it's Germany or Switzerland. One of our sons lives in Switzerland. One of them lives in Belize. So there is a lot of um, inspiration which you can get from all over the world, wherever you go. And then whenever I have some time in the shop, I work over there. Obviously, I go over there usually at 10 in the morning till 5 or 6, and then I go straight in the kitchen and cook. And when the boys were little, after they were in bed, I started painting till 2 or 3 in the morning. I can't do that anymore. I get too tired. And besides, we had animals too, you know, before we went to Saudi. Chickens, geese, ducks, turkeys, pigs, rabbits. And now I say, my God, how did I do it all? But you just do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know when you were talking about, uh, you said it's like watercolors. You can't make a mistake when you were talking earlier. So is that yes. what your medium? Do you use, do you mostly paint watercolors or um, what? What? Yes. Well, I use all different media. Watercolor is really the most taxing because if you have, want to do a pure watercolor, the layers have to be translucent. You have to be able to look through it. I work with acrylics. The colors can be mixed much easier than oils and they dry a lot quicker. Mm -hmm. I do some pencil sketches. I work in all media. I don't limit myself to one single thing. But the most important thing is I don't want to paint when I'm depressed. And that I have stuck by. I don't want to leave negative stuff behind me. So my paintings radiate my love for nature, my love for animals. I have painted some of the animals around here, from the bobcat to the mountain lion, to foxes, to you name it. I have a really, really wide range of things that I paint and also style. You can never say, okay, Goodwin Bellachow did that. Because I do some abstract things, not very many, but I do them if the mood strikes me. Mostly I do realistic paintings and some very inspirational paintings. For instance, I did two or three paintings when we lived in Saudi Arabia, when I was teaching art. I did a painting of the house we lived in in Holland three years before we ever set foot into Holland with exactly the windowsills, the curtains flying, the fruits in baskets which were growing in an orchid, in an orchid, <laughs> sorry, an orchard there. 
So you had a vision of what this house would be before you had ever seen the house and painted it? Yes. And the same oh. with um, a painting also did over there in, in the Haran of a street. When you come to the shop, you can I'll show them to you. It's a street in France with the sun setting at the end of the street and a white church steeple on the side. I had never seen a white church steeple and we had at that point not driven through that part of France. And when we lived in Holland, we went on vacation to Spain with all everybody crammed in the car. And all of a sudden, the boys all said, stop, Dad, stop. There is mom's painting. It was exactly the street, exactly the houses, the sun setting at the end of the road, and that white church steeple. And there are um, like ghost people on the side walking along. Anyway, I, painting has to be a total inspirational type thing. One evening, New Year's Eve, I sat down and did the most beautiful painting of Nefertiti, a bust of Nefertiti. I love Egyptian mythology. I had never seen it. It's one of those eerie things. And James, as part of his studies, he studied in Germany, in Mainz. Um, I think that was psychology. And he went to Berlin just as the wall went down, remember? And mm -hmm. at a Egyptian exhibit of Egyptian mythology in Berlin, and he had taken pictures. And there was the exact picture of Nefertiti the way I had painted it. So what can I say? I, I don't know what you can say. I've never heard of anything like this. So your son was in Germany when the wall came down in Berlin and you went to this exhibit on ancient Egypt and there was the exact same yes. portrait of Nefertiti as you had yes. painted it. Oh my God. <laughs> it's, it's amazing and I should have never sold that painting. Never. But anyway... I can't do that again. This has to just happen. The yeah. art, it has to just happen on your canvas. You can't say, I'm going to paint this or that. I know it sounds strange. You can't explain it. Just No, I've, I've never heard anything like that. Well, our, our time has gone so fast. I just don't know if you have any closing thoughts for our listeners. Any, any ideas you'd like to leave them with? Well, I love people. I like to learn about them, about their life. The shop really is a psychology center. More people come and tell me their problems. And then I can't sleep all night. And I try to help them, but, you know, you can only give your well-meant advice. People don't usually take it. But it is a place to get away from the hassle, from the phony stuff, you are like stepping into a different world, into Europe, or wherever you want to be. 
you are never harassed. If you want to buy something, fine. If not, that's fine too, as long as you appreciate what I have. In fact, half the time, the people don't even get to look around. If I know somebody, we get talking because it's so lonely up here. <laughs> 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 I have a lot of older people that love to come in the summer, not now. I mean, it's so cold over there because they say you are the only one that takes time to listen and to spend time. Well, what else do we have to give each other except our time? and a caring personality. Anyway, anybody's welcome. People can call anytime they want to come. You have my phone number. I have not been staying over there because I would be dead by now. It's much too cold, but um, I come over. I never go anywhere. Um, we can set up appointments. No, in all the years I've had my shop, I have never had an unhappy customer. I always tell people, if you are not sure that you want it, leave it sitting right here. I have never had anything returned or exchanged. I make up your mind. Either you want it or you don't. Either you can afford it or you cannot afford it. It's very simple. 